Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. Please pray with me. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, and your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in the land, in his hand. For the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. 
Now, if you remember back to the sermon series we did before this series, we called it the profile of the Christ, the profile of the Messiah. And we looked at a number of different ways that Jesus was represented uh, in one of the early chapters of one of the Gospels. But this is actually the question that runs all the way through the Gospels. You remember one of the passages we did look at was where Jesus was lowered through the roof and I'm sorry, a paralytic man was lowered through the roof and Jesus said to that man, your sins are forgiven. And the question they asked at that point was, who is this? Who is this that forgives sins? Or even the disciples on the boat when Jesus calms the waves and the storms and the winds and they asked, who is this? Who is this that has authority over the wind and the waves? And next week, We'll be looking at Jesus riding in on a donkey, where all of Jerusalem comes out and says, who is this? Who is this man that raised someone uh, just over the hill there? Who is this man that, that is, is getting all this attention? Who is this Jesus? But have you wondered, have you ever wondered how Jesus saw himself? What would Jesus the man have answered to the question, who is this? Have you ever wondered what Jesus' self-consciousness of himself was. Now there's a recurring idea in Jesus' description of himself as one who suffers, the suffering servant. And this passage, as well as being known as the man of sorrows, is known as the suffering servant. Now there are two big passages in Luke which, which actually make this really clear. There's one right between the sending out of disciples and the transconfiguration, where Jesus literally says to the disciples, who do they say I am? And they give some answers about Elijah or different people. Then he asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And they say he's the Christ. And he responds to them like this. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. His self-description is as a man of suffering. Another really important self-descriptive text, you'll remember after he was crucified and the disciples had pretty much given up, they decided, some of them had decided to go fishing, they were all walking all over the place, and then they're on the road to Emmaus and they meet Jesus and they don't recognize him, and he starts talking to them and then he says, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophet, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Suffering, suffering is key to how Jesus sees himself and the work of his ministry. Now, we just read five really beautiful poetic stanzas. Poetry, as we said, often called the man of sorrows or the suffering servant. Fifteen verses here. Eight of those verses appear in the New Testament as descriptions of Jesus himself. More than 50% of the verses in this little piece of poetry are quoted in the New Testament in reference directly to Jesus. And we are going to study this poetry carefully now. We're going to have a look at a lot here, but we're going to look at it through the lens of the suffering servant. Now, if you were a Jewish schoolboy or schoolgirl, and you're in class and you're about to read through this poetry, 
you wouldn't read it from beginning to end. You'd actually read it from outside in. I know if you were studying Shakespeare or some great piece of English literature, you would read it linearly, but that's not how the Jews did it. They started on the outside and they worked towards the center. And the most important thing was in the middle. Now, the question isn't why did they do it like that, of course, is why did Shakespeare, who came thousands of years later, decide to do it linearly? So we're going to look at verses, or at stanzas one and five, which really talk about a rescue mission to accomplish. Then we're going to look at stanzas two and four, for those who reject him. And finally, we're going to hone in on the most important stanza of all, stanza three, by being rejected by the Father. And this is the story, this is the narrative of this, this piece of poetry. A rescue mission to accomplish for those who rejected him, by being rejected by the Father. So let's look at this rescue mission to accomplish. Now part one, or stanza one, defines the scope of this rescue mission. And we see actually that it's very big. He compares in this passage, and I'll read it to you and then we'll unpack it, but he compares how physically unrecognizable, how marred and how distorted from healthy human body Jesus ends up, he compares that to how differently Jesus is seen before and after his crucifixion. A very dark metaphor of comparison. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Now, we live in a time where we know that this is true. This small-time Nazarene carpenter has shut the mouths of kings around the world. This term, sprinkling, is a purifying rite. He's sprinkling with his blood and his salvation. It's further fulfillment of the I will make you a light to the nations, which is, he says to Israel, my death and resurrection, he is saying, turns that light from just awareness into salvation. It, it turns you into the covenant people. Now, I have a test here for those of you who are under the age of 21, mostly that's our youth group, the very first person outside of the community of believers, that small little Jewish believers, who became a follower of Jesus in the book of Acts, was not Cornelius. In fact, it happened much earlier than that. And it happened because he happened to be reading Isaiah 53, and not just any section of Isaiah 53, but the middle stanza of Isaiah 53. Now, some of you may know the answer to that, and if you don't, and you're over the age of 21, and you want to come and ask me after the service, uh, feel free to do so. But if you're under the age of 21, and you would like a chocolate bar, come back with this answer. What chapter in Acts, what verses in Isaiah 53 and which country in Africa was this man returning to? So 
So the scope of the rescue mission is big. And Isaiah 53 captures that scope. He has a light to the nations. This is world missions. This is fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom. To every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So we jump to stanza five. And we see that this is about the motivation for the rescue mission. I'm going to read five, and I'll, as I read it, I'll highlight the three key verses, which, or three key sections, which are found in verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And, through, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring... And prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I give him a portion among the great, and I will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made the intercession for the transgressions. Now, we just learnt that in Hebrew poetry, you take the bit in the middle last because that's the most important piece. So let's look at the two pieces on either side of that. See his offspring and prolong his days. Jesus finds his joy. He finds his motivation to be the suffering servant because both he... And we will be resurrected to spend time together. He is motivated to walk through all this suffering so that he can be in fellowship, in relationship. He can return to that healthy covenant status with us. And that's repeated because that's what Hebrew poetry does. On the flip side of that key verse, with after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He suffered and is resurrected, the light of life, and is satisfied. Why? Because he has been faithful to the Father and because you and I are with him. Do you see the depth of this motivation is his love for us? His passion, his driving passion is you and me. And then the key piece in the middle of that is the line, the will of the Lord will prosper at his hands. So his motivation is not driven by human approval or even, and this is what is so radically amazing here, or even God's acceptance. His motivation is that he gets to see the Lord's will prosper at his hands. It is not even hearing the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. It is knowing that he is acting as a good and faithful servant. It is, I get to be a good and faithful servant of the Lord. Here we get deep insight into the motivation of Jesus. Jesus' deep joy and passion comes from his identity as a servant of the Father. Jesus' deep joy and passion comes with being with you and me forever. The sense of who he is, the suffering servant who loves us, brings joy and passion to Jesus' work, even in its horrendous suffering. Now, this text is about Jesus. 
But if it makes you feel a little uncomfortable to think about how little your deep joy and passion comes from identifying as a servant to the Father, or your deep joy and passion comes from seeing others enter into God's kingdom, this discomfort that you feel is a holy discomfort. God is working in your heart. So listen. So the first two outside standards, a rescue mission to accomplish. Moving in then to stanzas two and four, for those who reject him. Now this psalm, it's not this psalm, sorry, this poem in Isaiah is actually, whilst it's very beautiful, is also horrendous and brutal. It, it describes what's akin to physical and psychological torture. We sanitize by focusing on the salvific work in this passage. But for the moment, I want to take another look at the suffering. And I want you to imagine this is not just uh, on some distant person that walked in Nazareth. Let's apply this context to a high schooler at a high school. And imagine that this is the experience of that high schooler. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now that would be enough to send most high schoolers off the edge just there. He was despised and rejected by mankind, by all his peers. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from, who, from whom people hid their faces. Imagine that person in the high school corridor that everyone saw and hid their faces from. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. And jumping to paragraph stanza four. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led to, like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent. The bullies are all around him. They're pushing him. They're poking him. They're sticking his head in the toilet. They're oppressing him. And he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? No one around him defended him. No one else in the school came to his defense. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now that rejection we described in the high school context is, is not even close to what Jesus went through. But I think it gives us a glimpse of the psychological and physical torture that was experienced by Jesus at the hands of those who rejected him. This rejection is on another level. It's reinforced with brutal physical assault, with bullying. It's designed to humiliate. It's physically marring, and it usually leaves psychological scarring. Nobody steps in. Everyone watches the humiliation. Even those few you thought were your friends watch on 
as the world rejects you. Now, many of us think, oh, that's the, that's the narrative of the next school shooter. Certainly, it is actually the profile of, one, of, of some of the sex offenders before they offended. But worse than that, those people who grow up experiencing those things think that everyone looks at them and says, you're the next school shooter, you're the next sex offender. It's like the child of the addict who prioritizes the drug over the child. Now, my counseling office is full of those who have tasted even a small part of this type of rejection. And they present with passive brokenness, with seething rage, with emotional disconnected voids. How do you survive such physical and psychological treatment? How is Jesus truly able to love those who reject him? Now, maybe you read that or heard me reading that passage where it says he went like a lamb to the slaughter and you thought that that's hopeless passiveness being described there. Remember when Peter cut the ear off the uh, centurion who tried to arrest him and Jesus restored the ear and said in that context, in that situation, Peter, if I wanted to, I could call legions of my father's to come down and protect me. Right? Yes, he was going, but it was a very active acceptance. He was walking into that because it was what the, the Father had called him. Now maybe it is that Jesus cares about them, but doesn't care what he thinks, what they think of him. And that's not true. I want you to know that it cuts Jesus deeply. Peter's betrayal hurts. Every time we betray him with words or behaviors, it hurts. It cuts Jesus deeply. Jesus wants us to love him with our whole selves, with our time, our money, our words, our behaviors. The worst thing you can do is minimize the pain and the hurt that your sin causes Jesus or his Father. But Jesus is so grounded in who he is as a servant of God, that while our rejection and betrayal hurt, they don't derail him. His motivation and his identity are so defined by the Father and the Creator of all things, the only unchangeable, that even our rejection, our oppression, our physical and psychological torture can't take away his identity. Now, is there hope for those of us with big or with small pockets of passive brokenness, seething rage or emotionally disconnected voids caused by big or small experiences of rejection and betrayal? Yes, there is true freedom in the hard work of being grounded in the Father Creator of all things, the only unchangeable the only place there is true freedom. We move on now from a rescue mission to accomplish for those who rejected him to that middle stanza. By being rejected by the Father. Now, as hard as it is to believe, and it is hard for me to believe sometimes, our rejection and betrayal is not the worst suffering Jesus experience. It is the reason 
for the worst suffering he experienced. The key stanza is stanza three, his rejection by the Father. Now, I'm not going to unpack this. I'm actually just going to read through it twice. When I read this, I know that I feel both the awe of Jesus and the discomfort at my rejection and betrayal of him. And the more I read it, the more I feel of both. Let me read it now. Surely he took up, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is our spiritual suffering, our deserved rejection and alienation from God that Jesus takes on himself. Despite how much physical and mental suffering we have caused him. Now, who is this Jesus? Who is this suffering servant. I don't have the capacity to understand this depth of love. We are in Lent and we should use this time to reflect. I want to reflect on this passage using Romans 8 verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Jesus is the suffering servant. As his followers, we too must expect to be suffering servants. The gospel of Jesus is in direct collision with much of the material values and morality of this world. If you are looking to serve, you should expect to suffer. And this is a place for us to reflect in. What are the compromises we make to avoid suffering? How do we make our lives easier and more comfortable at the expense 
of focusing on fully serving God? What are the distractions and affections that pull us away from God? Lent is a time for spiritual weeding. Hear Jesus' words, take up your cross of suffering and follow me. Self-denial is the way to self-fulfillment. Strive to live a humble life of suffering servant, service. This is the model set by our Lord, and it's how he saw himself as the suffering servant. Let's pray. Father, when we take a serious look at the suffering of Jesus, at the man of sorrows, when we see what our response to that was, and yet that was just the small pieces of the suffering, that was just us. It was, it was the iniquities and the sins of ours that he took upon himself because he loved us. Who is this man? Who is this Christ? Help us to live lives. Help us, help us to find this man. Help us to follow this man more deeply, to be willing to suffer, to be willing to serve, to see our mission as servants as big as he saw his mission, to be awed by the cross, to be awed by his willingness to come as the suffering servant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.